All right, go ahead and grab a Bible and go to uh, Nehemiah chapter 3. We're going to be in Nehemiah 3 this morning. I uh, appreciate uh, Pastor Jonathan giving me the opportunity to, to fill in and preach this morning. Um, uh, he uh, and Rebecca are, are having a, a vacation, spending a, a weekend vacation uh, this week. Um, and so I appreciate him giving me, giving me the opportunity to preach this morning. Um, and that, one thing I was thinking about this week as I was uh, preparing in, in Nehemiah is one thing that I appreciate about our pastor is that He's a Nehemiah-type leader, right? He's already talked in this series about how the fact that, uh, like, the main point from Nehemiah is not necessarily leadership, right? But that's, like, a secondary thing that you see uh, in this book from Nehemiah is you see him being a driven, uh, godly leader. He just keeps moving forward uh, even uh, when things aren't uh, ideal. And that's the, kind of, that's the kind of leader that we have uh, as a pastor. And so um, I, uh, he's, the kind of, he's the kind of pastor that that you want to get behind and and uh, want to get on board with. And so I, I know it puts huge wind in his sails whenever he can look around and see so many people getting on board and being optimistic and saying, hey, we're, we're moving forward for the gospel. So um, being the great leader that, that he is, uh, Jonathan has uh, left me with chapter 3 to preach from Nehemiah. Uh, and the reason why I say left me with it it's because if you've already glanced down at Nehemiah 3, you might know where I'm going with this. If, if, if Nehemiah 3 is one of those chapters in the Bible where you look at it and you read it and you go, okay, what am I supposed to be getting from this, right? It's, y'all know the chapters in the Bible that I'm talking about, right? The chapters where you read it and you're like, okay, what am I supposed to do with this, right? I'll give you a couple examples, okay? Uh, chapters like Genesis 5, for example, where it says, when Seth had lived 105 years, he followed Enosh, and Seth lived after he followed Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enosh lived 90 years, and he fathered Kenan, and so on. Right? Isn't that just really encouraging this morning? Right? Or another example, how about uh, Leviticus 3? Okay, you ready for this? If his offering is a goat, then he should offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on the head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And then offer, he shall offer from it as the offering of the food offering to the Lord, the fat coverings of the entrails and the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the loins and the long lobe of the liver that shall be removed with the kidneys. And all God's people said, I'm just kidding, you don't have to amen that, okay? But you, like, you see what I'm saying, right? We've all encountered, if you spend any significant amount of time with your Bible at all, we've all come across chapters like this, right? Where you look at it and you go, what? Right? Like, and Nehemiah 3 is one of those chapters. You read it and you're like, okay, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be getting from this, okay? I'll give you, like, just a little sample, okay? So here's, here's part of Nehemiah 3. It says, Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired the thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Yes, you heard that correctly, the dung gate. Malchijah and the son of Rechab, the ruler of the district of Beth Hecarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. You see what I mean? Okay, like that's pretty much how the entire chapter goes. Okay, it's basically just like, hey, this person worked on this section of the wall while that person worked on that gate, and this person worked next to this person. And you're just looking at it, and you're like, why do I need to know this again? Right? Like, why, what in the world does this have to do with me? Like, I'm just trying to make it through difficulties at my job or, or work through stuff with my family at home or have discipline in, in this, like, temptation area that I'm dealing with. Like, I, like, what am I supposed to do with this? How in the world does this help me? How in the world does it help me know that a guy named Melchijah worked on a dung gate? Right, like, is is he a carpenter? Is he a plumber? I'm not like I'm confused. What am I supposed to do with this? Right. Well, one of the main reasons why we can get frustrated with passages like this is because we can read it and and try to jump straight to what does this have to do with me? Right. 
Now, when we're studying the Bible, we do need to ask that question, right? We need to figure out how to practically apply God's word. But answering that question is a slow process. It's not a microwave answer all the time. We have to learn how to spend time in the text and say, hey, let me just learn what this means first. And then get to, okay, how does it apply to me? Yeah, I was, a minute ago, I was joking about Jonathan leaving me with this passage. But in reality, these are the kind of passages that, that kind of make me excited. Because the, the more I study the Bible, the more patience I get with, uh, with passages like this. Because the more you study, you start to realize, okay, even if I can't see the point right away, I know that there's a point there. Right? I know that there's a main point that God is, is, is seeking to communicate. I know there are nuggets of truth that God has packaged in this text. I just need to do the diligent work of mining out those truths. Okay? Now, I'm not going to lie to you. There was a point earlier this week where I was studying through this passage, and I'm thinking, God, I don't know where this is going. I'm not really sure what the point here is supposed to be. Okay? I, like, I hit that point. Okay? But that's the point where you just keep digging. Right? And there are some, there are some really rich truths that we're going to see from this text this morning. Okay? So whenever you come across chapters like this, be encouraged. Keep digging. Go get a little bit of help if you need to. I had to go get some help on this text earlier this week. Right? Go get some help. Keep on digging and move, move past that point into some awesome truths. Okay? Like, I hit that point this week, but I didn't stay there. Okay? But how do we get to the point where we can understand what this text means for us and how it applies to us? Okay? Here's one of the keys in studying the Bible well. In order to understand what it means for us, we have to first understand what did it mean to the original audience, right? Because every book in the Bible wasn't originally written directly to us, right? It was originally written to a specific audience, right? So what did this mean to a Jew living 2,500 years ago? Uh, a couple months ago, whenever uh, we took a trip down with uh, Garrett and Brittany to Mexico, we were down there and uh, I... Obviously, during that week, I heard way more Spanish than I'm used to. Um, and there would be there were times where Garrett and Brittany would be in a conversation with somebody in Spanish, and me and Karen and Jonathan are sitting there going like this. And then at one point, we'd be like, "Oh wait, he just laughed. She must have said something funny, right? That was that was a joke, right? That was funny. Don't get it." Right? There were literally times that week where I would catch myself laughing, and then I'd realize I don't know what I'm laughing at, right? Like they might be making fun of me right now. I have no idea. There was uh, the Sunday when we were down there, we went to a church service, and of course it was all in Spanish. And uh, there were different points where Garrett or Brittany would, would uh, uh, translate like part of a song or, or part of the sermon just so we weren't like totally lost. Because I would have been like totally lost. Like my high, with my high school Spanish, I would have understood like 10 words from the entire service. And when I say 10 words, what I really mean is I would have actually understood about five words. There would have been another five that I would have thought I understood and gotten completely wrong. Right? Like, he just said Holy Spirit, right? I recognize that one. That was Holy Spirit. It's like, no, he said muffin. But good try, okay? So sitting in that church service, right, when I'm hearing Spanish words, right, that basically means nothing to me, right? But looking around at everybody else in the room, it meant something to them, right? They could understand it. And so the words resonated and clicked with them. But for it to mean something to me, I had to learn what does this mean to them, it had to be translated from their context into my context, right? That's how we have to approach passages like this. At first, whenever we read it, we're kind of like me sitting in a Spanish church service where we're just, we read it and we're just kind of like confused and just have this like glossy look on our face, right? At first, these words don't mean much to us. But to the original audience of Jews 2,500 years ago, it meant something to them. These words resonated and clicked with them. But for it to mean something to us, we have to learn what did this mean 
to them. We have to translate it from their context into our context. So, what would this have meant to a Jew living in 400 BC? Okay? What, essentially what chapter 3 does is it basically like systematically kind of describes all the different portions of the wall and everything that all around Jerusalem as it's being rebuilt. Okay, so quick uh, review. We've already covered the first two chapters in Nehemiah where uh, we, we've learned that Nehemiah was a Jewish exile in Persia. We know that two waves of exiles have already gone back uh, to Jerusalem in the book of Ezra. And Nehemiah, he finds out that even though that's happened, there, the walls in Jerusalem are still broken down uh, and destroyed. And so the city is vulnerable to attack. And so Nehemiah prayerfully goes before the Persian king and gets permission to go back and rebuild the wall. And then when you get to the end of chapter 2, he, he goes around the, the walls and he's, he's inspecting the walls and getting a game plan together. And then he, he rallies everyone together to work together on this, uh, on this reconstruction project, right? That brings us to chapter 3, okay? So chapter 3, basically what it does is it starts on the north end of the wall, and then it goes counterclockwise all the way around the wall and talks about all the different portions of the wall and who worked on this part and who fixed this gate and who worked on that tower, da-da-da-da, until you get all the way back around to the top again, okay? So when a Jew in 400 B.C. would have read or heard these details of this construction project, what would have resonated and clicked with them? Well, for one thing, this, this chapter would have painted a picture for them, right? Because think about it. The, the original audience, they would have known ancient Jerusalem, right? We don't, right? Even if you've been to Jerusalem, it's still not the same, right? A couple of years ago, I, I got to visit Jerusalem, but that's modern Jerusalem, right? Even with that, it's like picturing the specifics of what they're talking about here with ancient Jerusalem is not like, we, we don't have a, a, a compartment for that in our, in our minds, right? A couple of years ago, whenever uh, Emily and I first moved here, we would hear people talking about, like, referencing, like, uh, Kingsley and Riverside and 17 and Arlington. And we're like, I don't know. That means nothing to me, right? We had no frame of reference for that, right? But now that we've lived here for a while, right, like, I, I know where all those places are, right? And if you've lived here for any significant amount of time, right, as soon as I start saying those places, you immediately have an image that comes to your mind, right? Oh, yeah, I know where that's at. I know what that looks like. I know, I know things that have happened there before, right? We have a compartment for it, right? That's what Nehemiah 3 would have been like for a Jew in 400 BC, right? It would paint a picture in their mind that they could visualize. So, how does that translate for us, okay? Well, this morning we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm not going to read a, a portion of this chapter like we normally do, other than what I already read a minute ago. Instead, we're going to do basically the modern-day equivalent. Okay, so if this chapter was intended to present a picture for the Jews in 400 B.C., we're going to use the modern-day equivalent. We're going to use actual pictures, right? So if you're like me, you're an adult, and you're like too old for having picture books, but you secretly get a little excited whenever you come across a book that has pictures in it. Just me? Okay. All right. So we're, we're going to like actually be able to, to kind of visualize this and do our modern equivalent of what of what an ancient Jew would have would have seen, right? So we're we're gonna go, but we're gonna start by going uh, back way further than Nehemiah, because for a, for a Jew picturing uh, these walls, they wouldn't have just pictured what Nehemiah what what Jerusalem looked like to Nehemiah. They would have had the entire history of the city in mind, right? So the first time that that Jerusalem was under Jewish control wasn't actually until uh, King David, okay. So prior to that, it had belonged to a group called the Jebusites, and then David comes in, he conquers the city, and he makes it Israel's capital, right? As a matter of fact, if you, if you go back even before David, if you go all the way back to uh, Abraham, the, there's significance of this spot already, because this over here on this hill, 
Okay? See, this is what happens whenever you let the youth pastor preach, right? We, sometimes we use fancy toys. Okay? The, if you're like me, this helps using, using visual tools. Okay? So this hillside right here, if you go back, if you remember the story of Abraham whenever God tells him to go uh, take uh, Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice, and then God has a, has a ram that's a replacement, right? That whole story, that hilltop is where that happens. Okay? So this area, all, all the way back at, at Abraham, this area is already significant for pointing forward to Jesus, right? So, but if you fast forward a ways, uh, you get to uh, David. So David comes in, he conquers the city. And so just to kind of visualize what, what's going on here, this right here up in the corner, that's David's palace right there. And then the rest of the city just kind of goes the rest of the way down the hill this way. Okay, so this, this whole portion, even after the time of David, this portion of, of Jerusalem was always known as the city of David. Okay, and so uh, for in modern cities, we're used to like big, spread out cities, right? Especially Jacksonville, right? But like it takes us an hour to get from one side to the other, right? But in, remember, like in ancient times, they obviously didn't have motor vehicles to travel long distances, so their cities were a lot smaller and a lot more compact. Okay, so for for a refer, for a frame of reference for about how big of a city we're talking right here, this entire city. So Jerusalem at the time of, of David, it's about the same size as our church property. So if you include, if you take like the parking lot and the field and the retention pond, like everything here, give or take, this is about the size of what Jerusalem looked like whenever David was in, in control of it. Okay, So, so that's where, where we kind of start with, right? But then Solomon comes along after David and he makes a pretty significant addition, right? He, he builds the temple, right? So up here, remember, this was the spot where, where Abraham went to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. So now Solomon builds the temple on the same spot as a place for sacrifice, right? So he, he kind of extends the city on up the hill. He builds himself this nice, big, massive palace right next to the temple and so on. So he, he adds on to it, okay? After Solomon, you have a long line of kings after him, right? And a few hundred years later, you get uh, King Hezekiah. So Hezekiah was one of the kings that was shortly before Babylon comes in and, and conquers the city. Okay? So this is what Jerusalem looked like in Hezekiah's day. Okay? So whenever, whenever Nebuchadnezzar comes in and Babylon comes in and conquers the city, this is what Jerusalem looks like at the time. So it's way bigger than, than what David and uh, Solomon saw. Okay? But here's the thing. Once that happens and then you have the exile, when Nehemiah comes back after the exile, this is what the city looks like now. Okay, now I know you may not be able to tell from that picture, but all this over here that have been added, that's not, those aren't buildings, that's just ruins. Okay, so the, the, the city is just this little part right here. So you can kind of see the wall kind of goes around this way. So it's just this long strip right here. So it's even smaller than what Solomon had seen. But the city has shrunk, shrunk back down that much. But you know, what, you know what's cool in the book of Nehemiah? You don't see the people looking around and being like, man... You remember what Jerusalem used to be like? Right? They're not sitting around and being like, man, Jerusalem used to be so much bigger. They're, just, they're, they're looking forward to what God's doing in the future. They're saying, hey, we're putting our heads down and we're, we're getting to work. Right? So chapter 3 in Nehemiah, basically the, the way that the chapter works is it starts up here. So the temple's right here. So it starts over here on the north side above the temple. And uh, it starts there. And then Nehemiah just gives us this explanation where he walks all the way around kind of counterclockwise around the, the city wall and is like, hey, so-and-so worked on this part and so-and-so fixed that gate, yada, 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 until he gets all the way back around here, okay? I just summarized Nehemiah 3 for you, okay? So 
now that we've got that visual in our minds, okay? Um, now that we've got that visual, what are some things that we can learn from this chapter, right? How does this translate into the language of our modern context? Okay, a couple of things. Number one, the work belongs to God. The work belongs to God. Okay, we see that in, in the very first verse. So look down in, in chapter 3, look at verse 1. It says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. So first of all, the very first group of people that you see getting to work are the priests, right? The spiritual leaders are, are setting the tone. And since the temple was their, was their responsibility, remember the temple was up at the north end of the, of the city, since that was their responsibility, they, got, they worked on the part of the wall that was closest to the temple, right? Specifically, they built one of the gates that was called the Sheep Gate. The reason why it was called the Sheep Gate is because that's where they would bring sheep through into the temple for sacrifice. Okay, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a minute. But verse 1 says that not only do they build this gate, but they consecrate it. Some of your versions may say that they sanctified it or they dedicated it, something like that. So what are they doing right here? Well, to consecrate or to sanctify something means to set it aside as holy and belonging to God. So they're saying this belongs to God. That's what they're doing. So it's significant that the very first thing that happens in this building project is that it's consecrated to God. The spiritual leaders are declaring, they're saying, hey, this isn't just a construction project, right? This city, this wall, this temple, these people, all of it belongs to God. This is not our building project. This belongs to God. Okay? You know why the people of Jerusalem got to work? They got to work because they believed in God's power of restoration. Listen, if they didn't believe that God could restore, they would have never picked up a hammer. But instead, they trusted that God is who He says He is, and that He would use their faithfulness to bring restoration. Right? Think about our mission statement as a church. Think about what it says. It says that we're following Christ and engaging everyday people with the gospel to be fully restored and satisfied in Him. Right? We're saying that we believe the same thing that this group of people believed. We believe that not just can God, can God restore broken walls and gates, but God can restore broken lives, broken families, broken relationships, most of all our relationship with Him. And if we believe that God restores then we should be busy in restoration work, right? We look around and we see the gods at work and we jump in. One commentary that I read this week said this. It said, why in the world would these people go to a broken down, trash ridden, dirty city to establish businesses, set up their families and help organize the community? Why in the world would they do that? It's because they know the Lord. They've been transformed by a Yahweh-centered view of life. Their priorities for their lives, including their entrepreneurial practices, their choice of where to live, their decisions to commit to a particular people, all of those priorities reflected their faith. The priorities of their lives were reflecting their faith. Listen, if our beliefs are different from the world, then our priorities should be different from the world too. Our decisions about jobs, where to live, who we're around, how we spend our time, those should all be impacted by the fact that we believe in a God of restoration. Our decisions should reflect an attitude of getting involved in restoration work. So they got to work because they believed in God's power of restoration. As a matter of fact, the very first guy that you see mentioned is the high priest. His name's Eliashib. Okay? Eliashib means God restores. But not only that, like it's like God restoring, that's not just in his name. He lives like he believes it. 
Right? Like, the word restore should not just be a word in our mission statement. We should live like we believe it. That's the first thing we see, that the work belonged to God. Number two, the work was done by everyone. The work was done by everyone, or at least almost everyone. Okay, so I want us to see in this chapter that everyone's getting involved. Now, you do, do you do see a couple examples of people who are negative, they're not wanting to get involved. And next week we'll, we'll see some, some other people who, they don't just sit on the sidelines, they try and actively stop the process. But even in this chapter right here, you see a few people who are just like sitting off to the side and just being negative about it, right? But here's what I want us to see. Getting involved was the norm, not the exception. What you find is that the people actually working in Jerusalem seem to be the majority. And the people who aren't working, they're the, they're the few that are on the outside looking in. There's not a culture of sitting back and watching someone else do the work. The culture is saying, hey, if you're not helping out, you're missing out. That's the norm in Jerusalem right here. Right? You see one, except, one exception, for example, in verse 5. It says, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lords. So you have this group of people from a place called Tekoa, and it, it says that the, the common everyday people, they, they're on board. They jump in and they start working. But it says that their leaders and their nobles, they're like two snobby to, to stoop down and get their hands dirty and start working. But again, that's the exception. It's not the norm, right? When you read over the flow of this passage, that little note about them, it's like a side note. Like Nehemiah doesn't camp out and focus on it and be like, man, look at, look at how much they're not doing, right? The, the whole chapter, the, the way that it flows is it's saying, hey, these people worked here and these people worked here and these people worked here. Oh yeah, by the way, there was this group of, of uh, nobles who were too snobby to work, but who cares? Because these people worked and these people worked and they just keep on rolling, right? Nehemiah's telling us, he's like, hey, there were some naysayers over here. But everyone else didn't let it affect them. They just kept on rolling. Right? Who cares if they want to sit over there and be negative? That's their loss. We're just going to keep on rolling. We wanted them to be involved, but if they're not going to be involved, we're going to keep on rolling. As a matter of fact, skip all the way down to verse 27. It says, After him, the Tekoites, so the same group of people, repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. So this common group of people from Tekoa, they actually do extra work. Right, so it's, not only do they keep on rolling, it's almost like they're looking around and being like, hey, yeah, we know that our nobles are a group of knuckleheads and they're not doing anything, so you know what? We'll do extra work. That's their attitude. The normal is for everyone to get involved and serve. Last, last Saturday was super encouraging to see so many of our, of our volunteers here. We had a, our volunteer appreciation breakfast. And to be able to look around and see that many people that are all plugged in and working and, and serving and being involved. And we had a lot more that, that weren't even able to be here. And we, the cool thing is we have so many different volunteers. We have all ages. We have uh, people have, with all different giftings, all different stories. But all those differences come together for one unified purpose. And that's the same thing that you see in Jerusalem. right? If you read through the entire chapter, you see that, that Nehemiah talks about all different kinds of people working. He talks about ordinary people from all sorts of different places. He talks about business owners like perfumers and merchants and goldsmiths. He even talks about politicians and rulers of various regions. You see families getting involved. He talks about a group of brothers working over here. He talks about uh, a father with all of his daughters working over here on this portion of the wall. Nobody was too high or too low to get involved. They didn't say, no, nah, I'm, I'm too good to get my hands dirty with that. Nor did they say, I'm not good enough to be involved. They didn't say that about themselves, and they didn't say it about anybody else either. They didn't say, well, he's too good to be doing this, or she's not good enough to be on our team. They didn't say that. They just got to work. We said earlier that the work was God's, right? But this chapter reminds us 
that all throughout the entire biblical storyline, God chooses to do His work through human hands. God doesn't need us to do anything, right? doesn't need us to accomplish anything. He could accomplish His plans by whatever means He chooses, but the means that He chooses is us. Douglas Wilson says it this way. He says, God draws straight with crooked lines. God chooses to use imperfect people to accomplish perfect purposes. His ways are not our ways. His means are not always going to be the means that we would use. But His plans are better than ours. And thank God He uses crooked lines like us to accomplish His plans. There's another commentary I read this week that, that pointed out a couple observations about uh, the work and, the, and the, the workers and what they're doing. For one thing, notice that not, every, that not all the work was equally pleasant, but it was all equally important. Not all the work was equally pleasant, but it was all equally important. Okay, for example, how would you have liked to have been on the crew that was assigned to work on the dung gate? You know why it was called the dung gate? It's because that was the gate where you carried all of the garbage and human waste out that gate to the city dump, which was right outside the gate. Okay, so remember, we're obviously talking like we're obviously talking before sanitation departments and before plumbing, right? So basically, like all the garbage, all of the bloody leftovers from the temple sacrifices, and all of the human waste had to go somewhere, right? So it had to be carried down to, the, down to this gate, which was down at the bottom of the hill. Right? So if you remember that picture of Jerusalem, te- the temple was up at the top. The dung gate was all the way at the bottom. Okay? So you had to carry all that down to the bottom of the hill. So you would like, get all your stuff, try not to breathe through your nose while you walk down the hill through the streets. You go all the way down. You go through the dung gate out to the Valley of Hinnom, which was right outside. And you would dump all of that filth down into the Valley of Hinnom for it to be burned. Because the, the Valley of Hinnom was basically the, the city dump for, for Jerusalem. So that's where you would burn all your garbage and all your waste. Okay? As a matter of fact, years later, Jesus would actually use images from this same valley dump to talk about hell. Okay? Like, this, is, this is not like the picnic spot around Jerusalem. Okay? This is not the spot you want to be. So imagine that you, Nehemiah comes in and you get put on the construction crew that has to repair the dung gate. So all day long, you're hot, you're sweaty, you're dirty, and you're constantly intaking the smell of burning garbage, burning animal carcasses, and burning feces. Okay, that's, that's your work environment. Okay? And every time you look up through the street, you dread to see someone coming down the hill with a bucket. Because you know they've got to walk right past you to go dump it out. Okay, this, this is a scenario where Febreze plugins are not going to help. Okay, like this is this is not good working conditions, and it would be so easy to think, man, why why couldn't I got put on the fountain gate crew, or even the fish gate crew would have been way better than this. But that job was just as important as any other. That part of the wall needed to be sealed up and protected, just like every other part. It's always easy to look around at someone else's role and be like, man, why can't I do that? Right? Why do I got to be the one changing diapers in the nursery? Why do I got to be the one teaching this class? Why can't I have the easy class? Why do I have to do this dirty job when that person has it way easier, right? But that's not the attitude you see in Jerusalem. Not all the work was equally pleasant, but it was all equally important. We also see that not everyone was equally gifted, but they were all equally valuable. For example, one of the groups of people that Nehemiah talks about is he talks about perfumers working on the wall. Okay, they had the Bath and Body Works employees grabbing a hammer, 
and putting stones in the wall and putting up beams, okay? Like, these are not the people who are best equipped for this job, right? Like, they probably had blisters on their soft hands for weeks doing this job, right? But they did it willingly and gladly. We're all gifted in different ways, but there are times where we have to help get the work done, even if it's in an area where we're not naturally gifted, right? I've used this example a lot, but it's like it works perfect right here, right? For upper basketball, the, whenever, in the fall when we start recruiting uh, to, to get volunteers together, every year I have people come up to me and say, hey, I know nothing about basketball, but I can do something, Right? And we would not be able to do upward basketball without those individuals. We would not be able to use basketball to share the gospel with our community without individuals who say, I know nothing about basketball, but I can help somewhere. Not everyone was equally gifted, but they were all equally valuable. So first we saw that the work belonged to God. Then we saw that the work was done by everyone because God's using imperfect people. And then the last thing I want us to look at is some really significant symbolism with a certain part of, of the wall. Okay, So we're going to wrap up by talking about the sheep gate that I mentioned earlier. So it's the, it's the very first thing that's mentioned in verse 1. And so like I said, the, the chapter starts there, and it traces all the different building projects all around the wall until it finally gets back at the sheep gate. As a matter of fact, if you look down at the chapter, if you look at the first verse and the last verse in the chapter, you see that it starts and then it ends at the sheep gate. Now, why was this gate in particular? Why was this one significant? Okay. Well, like I mentioned, this was the gate that was on the north end right next to the temple. And this is where they would bring the animals through, particularly sheep, for the temple sacrifices. So the people, for hundreds of years, all through the, the Old Testament, the people had to bring these sacrifices continually into the temple to be killed as a payment for sin. So it was, it was a reminder that the payment for sin is death. And so these animals are dying instead of the people. Now, if you're... For those of us who are Christians, like, our minds should already be turning, right? Because we know that every Old Testament sacrifice points forward to Jesus, who's the ultimate sacrifice. So there were, there were millions and millions of sheep and goats and bulls that were slaughtered for hundreds of years as payments for sin. And part of, part of the reason for that is to show us just how massive our sin problem is. Just how horrific our sin rebellion really is. And that paves the way for Jesus to come and to make the final sacrifice where he takes all the weight of our sin on his own shoulders. He takes a burden that was so heavy, a million animal sacrifices couldn't carry it. Jesus took every bit of it on his own shoulders when we were the ones to bear it on our shoulders. God, God stepped in, God himself stepped in and took the punishment for us. So the sheep gate points us forward to Jesus. So think about it. The, the people could only enjoy a relationship with God because of sacrificial sheep coming through this one and only gate. And we can only enjoy a relationship with God because of the sacrificial lamb who is the one and only gate. There's, to close out, there's three observations about this gate that I want to look at briefly. Okay? First of all, this gate was the only part of the wall that was consecrated and set apart to God. So we, I mentioned earlier how the, the priests, when it, they didn't just build it, they consecrated it. But this is the only, there's no other gate or section of wall where it says that they do the same thing. It's just this one. So the implication is that once this gate was, was consecrated, the entire wall was cleansed. The sheep gate was sufficient. They didn't have to go around and keep clean, cleansing all the different parts of the wall. Right now you had spots like the dung gate that probably needed a different kind of cleansing. Right? But once the sheep gate was consecrated, that was sufficient. 
Listen, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to cleanse us completely. We don't have to keep scrubbing ourselves to look clean enough for God to love us and use us. If you've given your life to Jesus, you've been consecrated and set apart to be His, and nothing's changing that. And so when we mess up, we don't, go, we don't go scrub ourselves clean so that we can make God happy and then come back to Him, right? We come to Him open and honest with confession and repentance, knowing that His sacrifice has been, sacrifice has been sufficient. So often we think, you know what, I'm, I'm just not good enough, right? Well, in and of ourselves, yeah, we're right. We're not good enough. But if you're a Christian, you're not in and of yourself anymore. You're in Christ. And Christ has declared us to be righteous by His blood. Second observation. There's several other gates that Nehemiah talks about over the course of this chapter. So every time that Nehemiah describes how a gate was, uh, was rebuilt or repaired, with all of them, he describes them the same way except the sheep gate. So with every other gate project... Nehemiah said, he uses this phrase. He says that they would set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. So the fish gate, they would set its bolts, its, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. The valley gate, they would set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and so on. Okay? But in verse 1, when it describes how they repaired the sheep gate, it says they consecrated it and set its doors. Notice what's missing? The sheep gate doesn't have bolts and bars. There's no way to lock it. The only gate, think about this, the only gate that doesn't lock, the only gate that is open freely for anyone to come through, is the gate where the sacrificial lamb comes through. Listen, there's only one way to the Father. There's only one way to be made right with God. But that one way is open freely to anybody, and his name's Jesus. Anyone can come to him. He takes us just as we are, but he doesn't leave us that way. He makes us his, and he changes us from the inside out. And we need to be a church that embodies that. We need to be a church that has the door standing wide open for anyone to come in and meet Jesus. Last observation. Remember that this chapter started and ended with the sheep gate, right? So everything was built around the sheep gate. Listen, everything starts with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Everything starts with him and it all ends with him. The gospel is the starting point and the ending point for everything that we do. Everything is centered around Jesus. Everything is centered around the gospel. If the gospel is not central to what we do as individuals, and if the gospel is not central to what we do as a church, then we're just putting up useless projects. We're just putting up useless ministries. We're just putting up useless events. One commentator says this. He says, We may build buildings and open schools and organize food pantries and establish crisis pregnancy centers and run cafes and start businesses and many other things. But if there's no gospel, we are only building a godless Babylonian city. There's a reason why Jerusalem was different than Babylon. There's a reason why the church is different from the world. And that reason is the gospel. If we're not centered around that message and that truth, then our accomplishments will be meaningless and futile. Get excited about what God's doing and jump in. Believe that God is a God who restores and jump into restoration work. And keep all of that restoration work centered around the gospel. Don't let a single ministry or project of this church become disconnected from the good news of Jesus. Everything needs to stay centered around the gospel. Let's pray.